Amen. All right. Well, thanks, Devin. Guys, appreciate it. I, my the first time I had Devin do music back in 80 or 81, something like that, he, he had graduated from eighth grade. And his, if you don't know, his father started the band The Surfaris and wrote Wipeout when he was 15. So Devin wanted to play a guitar thing at graduation. And so we go, sure. He, I think he roped another kid to play him with him. And they wouldn't stop. They just kept playing and playing. And Pastor Chuck's like, you know. And so I'm like trying to get his attention. He's just still playing away. So I went and I just pulled the cord out of his amp. And so I told him this morning before first service, remember, I know how to deal with you if you, if you go too long. But uh, I'm really proud of him. He, he still plays with the Safaris, but he has his own band, the Tour Moliners, who are up for a Grammy this year. So he got the last laugh. <laughs> but thanks, man. I love this guy. <laughs> no, no, just get out of here. But it's special. He drove up from San Diego to be with us today, and I appreciate that. Well, we are in a series called Verses for Life. And the objective is to find individual verses that you can learn, put, program them into your mind, carry them with you throughout the week. And what we have looked for are the kind of verses that if you're thinking about it all week, it's checking you. It's like, am I actually doing this? So the powerful kind of truth bombs that Scripture has so many of that allow us to carry his word in our hearts, that allow us to have an ongoing interaction with him during our week and have his word check us. So that's what we're doing each Sunday is pulling out one of those. And it's amazing how many verses that are like, You know, if you just lived the rest of your life by that verse, you would be really blessed. And so um, I'm really enjoying this study. The verse that we're going to look at today comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the longest version of it. But it was a sermon he preached to basically tip everyone's apple cart upside down. He was basically saying, Here's the deal. If you're going to follow me, if you're going to be in my kingdom, you're going to do things differently than everything you've ever been taught. You're going to do things differently than everyone else in the world does them. He didn't want to establish a really good version of what already existed. His kingdom was a reinvention of everything that we know and practice and learn. And so that his people would stand out as being distinct. Um, So the Sermon on the Mount is that. We're going to look at in Matthew 5, verse 16. But it kind of, you can back up a couple verses because in, in Matthew 5, 14, he says, you are the light of the world. And he goes on to say in those two verses that when you have a light, you put it on a lampstand. You don't stick it underneath a basket or, a, or a, really a, a dish. You open it up and hang it up there so that it can light the room. So, and then verse 16, this is our verse for life for this week, if you, if you choose to play along. He says, 
So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. A pretty simple verse. Now, by the way, the so in the verse probably really should go at the beginning because he's saying in the same way that a light is made to shine, not to be covered, in that same way that you, you're the light, don't be covered, but let what you, who you are show up to people around you so that when they see your good works, they will see how amazing God is. So, wow, what, a, what an amazing truth that he's laying on us. But I want to pull it apart a little bit so that we can really consider the significance of it. It's light in the scriptures was used often as a metaphor, as a, as a picture that speaks to something that's much greater than what you're just specifically talking about. And so, you know, back in John 8, after Jesus dealt with the people who wanted to give the death penalty, the woman who was caught in adultery, and he told them, hey, if you're without fault, cast the first stone. She got off the hook. He told her, you know, I'm not condemning you. Just go and you can live differently now. Go and sin no more. Then he turned to the crowd And the next thing he said was, I am the light of the world. You know, if you you follow me, you won't walk in darkness, but you'll have the light of life. So he chose that metaphor to describe himself. But then when you think about it, so he says, I'm the light of the world. And then he says, you're the light of the world. That's pretty amazing. He isn't saying, you're just like me. But he's saying in the same way that the imagery, the symbolism of light refer, can apply to me, the same thing applies to you. You are to be this, and my life is showing you how to live out this metaphor, if you will. The, the, the metaphor of using light is used in the scriptures well over 200 times, 220 sometimes that I came up with. So it's very common. So you ask yourself, why is light? I mean, light is something we take for granted. Look, yep, it's light. Yep, we have lights here. A light burns out, yep, no big deal. It's, but, you know, you try doing it without light completely, that's a whole different thing. But why is light used? Why would Jesus choose light to symbolize not only himself, but us as well, especially in relationship to our effect in the world? Well, light and life are intricately connected. It, at, a, at a base level, and even you know, in John 3, after Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, and he talked about John 3.16 and all that, and he said, you'll have the light of life. He equates light and life, that they go together. And this is literally true. If you think about your life as a human being, how are you able to do what you do? It's because... You are, though we are certainly in many ways immaterial, yet our immaterialness, our psyche, our soul, exists on a framework of a body, of a skeleton, of bones. Well, how do you get those bones? How do they even work? Well, of course, if you're a living person, those bones become an expression of of who you are. But actually, 
Your bones could not be what they are if you didn't have light. The the light of the sun is what gives you vitamin D, which interacts with your calcium to build strong bones, as the commercials say. And so, and yeah, you can take vitamin D supplements, but the amount of vitamin D that you get from being in the sun for like 15 minutes totally makes your bones what they are, much better than any artificial you know, ingestion of a vitamin. Vitamins, ingested vitamins are really good for sales, but they're really, you're, you will be much stronger, you'll have stronger bones. And, you know, people who have osteoarthritis, often that's a reflection of not being out in the sun enough. In fact, little children, they, they say you, you really need to get a baby even out and expose them to the sun for a bit because their bones are developing and they can't do that without. So at any rate, without boring you there, you begin to realize, okay, light and life, they're more connected than maybe I thought of. But also when it comes to, and today's a good day to talk about it, the time change. I mean, the time change is so stupid. You know, (laughs) no one but a government could ever come up with something like this. Because if you look at the data, just changing the time for an hour one way or the other, there will be more car accidents because people will get sleepy and fall asleep. There are actually, there's more crime. There are more suicides. There's more depression. There's so much, so many bad things happen because your orientation toward the light gets askew. It isn't there. And we understand that, but what do we do about it? Not much, apparently. But it has, you know, your, they talk about your circadian rhythms, the, the built-in rhythm that your body has to function. Your life itself is affected and impacted by something as simple as light. If you go live somewhere where there are really short days and long nights, for instance, it has an effect because the light actually helps program everything that we are. And so, you know, that's it. But at the same time, when we talk about death, we often, the best way to think of death is a light being flipped off. You know, it's like his lights went out. That's the night that the lights went out in Georgia. Boom, it died. It's never recovered. But, you know, not really, but... (laughs) I think of Dylan Thomas's beautiful poem that he wrote for his father when he was trying to talk his father into not dying. And he, and he said, do not go gentle into that good night. He said, rage, rage against the dying of the light. He saw his dad as being, as you want to die, you are wanting to have your light put out. And so that metaphor is powerful. There's a reason why children are afraid of the dark. The dark, you don't have to teach a kid, you know, what would be really cool is to have a nightlight. No, there's something within them that connects with the idea that, oh, darkness is bad and and light is good. Light is living. Light is life. Um, When we read in the Bible about heaven, one of the distinct and interesting, fascinating elements of heaven is that there's no darkness there. He said there's no night because the sun is the light. 
when, you're, when you are around Jesus in his glory, there's no place for darkness. Now, of course, Jesus plays off of this and, and talking about loving darkness because you're doing the wrong things, and all of that is true too. Most, most crime happens at night. Most suicide happens at night. Um, most sins, really, when you come down to it, they increase greatly when it's night. So heaven is like all light. But how about hell? It's called outer darkness. So right away you see light, life, wow, these are really connected. When, when John wrote his gospel to explain about Jesus and who he is, and, and John 1, one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, that begins with, in the beginning was the word, the logos, logic, reason, life, everything about it. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then he goes on as he talks about John the Baptist, and he says, he wasn't the life, he was sent to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. And so, again, John makes the connection between Jesus reasoning, merging in a life in a way that is enlightening, that ends up becoming the story of redemption, ultimately. That when he became flesh and dwelt among us, we beheld his glory. And so, life and light, it's hard to separate them. They are intimately involved for sure. So when Jesus says that we're the light of the world, that means something. And when he says, let your light shine, he's saying something very profound and specific. Now, light isn't only about life, though, because the metaphor for life is used in other ways too, but in reality with life, with light, um, Sometimes light is just clarifying. Sometimes it's like the lights are dim and you can't see what you need to see. That, and the older I get, the more I use the flashlight on my phone. Because it's like, oh, where is that? And I can shine the light around and do it. When you're driving on a street. I used to drive in almost in the darkness and it wouldn't bother me. But now I'm like, what's wrong? These street lights just aren't what they used to be. <laughs> because they clarify. We had our our uh, fall festival Halloween party thing here this week, which went great, by the way. Thanks for those of you who helped. But um, Alsea got these, all these huge lights on these poles that go up with generators and everything. And it wasn't so that people could stand around out here. We had five of them. They actually left one, so it's still sitting there. But, you know, it wasn't about the lights. It wasn't like, oh, come and look at the lights. No, the lights lit up the parking lot so that everything else that was being done, the pony rides and the petting zoo and the food and everything else, all that could work because functionally the light was actually helping us to see things that weren't about the light but things that were, you know, that we couldn't have seen otherwise. There are times when we've done those parties out here with just our parking lot lights and it's not nearly as effective as it is with that brightness. But light, in another way, and the scripture will talk about this a lot as well, and certainly in life we think about this, 
a lot of times light is just about creativity and subtlety and revelation. For instance, in art, well, if you're a a photographer, you know, the lighting has a lot to do with the end product. Even in a painting, the use of light and shadowing, the subtleties, it allows it to emit certain emotions and feelings that wouldn't be there if it was just a cartoon. And so, you know, I like my one of my favorite paintings is a Van Gogh painting called Starry Night. You're probably familiar with it. I have a copy of it. It's not the original in my office. <laughs> but but it's a painting that Van Gogh painted while he was in an insane asylum. Van Gogh had been a missionary and a pastor and to the coal miners and and he had a bad experience with church and he was really he was kind of losing it and he looked out the window of the insane asylum and he saw this little village and the stars in the sky in this painting are really unique cuz they're like spl- spl- plastered because he had tears in his eyes and that's the way they looked but looking at the village every little house in that painting has lights on in the windows except for the church the windows in the church are dark and that's why I have it in my office to remind me that we need to be a light. That may God never look at like there's light everywhere except the place where we're commanded to have it. And so, again, it emits a powerful reaction. Now, Christmas is coming up pretty soon. Christmas lights do that. And we'll end up putting up our you know, fake Christmas trees with lights and stuff because Lights do that. It's kind of like stars. You go out at night and you see the stars or you see the moon. It's, it sets a certain mood. Lighting can do that for us. And, it, and really just for aesthetics, not, not because of function, not so that you can have clarity or not to make a statement about life. It's just like, wow, this feels really cool. If you've seen the sphere in Las Vegas, they built this massive sphere that's like made out of LED lights, I think, billions of them, and it can do all different colors, and what U2 did, uh, does, did a concert there, and I saw some of the video of it, of it and, and it's like amazing effect, kind of like the, you know, at the beginning of baseball season, they started doing these uh, drones that had all these lights on them. Lights can be like, wow, that's pretty amazing. And so sometimes light is just about beauty. It's just there for the looks. And you know this one, you know, the prettiest time of day for me, sunrise and sunset. It's the lights, the way they hit. It's aesthetic. Now, when it comes to creativity, God understood this as well. Remember, you go to Genesis 1, the creation of everything. Nothing, you will never learn more about creativity than you learn in Genesis chapter 1. We're created in his image to be creative as well. But it describes Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters and God said, let there be light. 
and there was light. God saw that it was good. His creation started with light. So when God talks about light, it should get our attention. We should recognize, okay, this is something very um, beautiful and subtle and life and death. It's all of those things, powerful metaphor. So we come to verse 16, and he says, let your light so shine before men. In the same way that you don't cover a light, people need it. In the same way, let your light, he doesn't even say let my light shine. He's not just saying preach the gospel. No, you're the light. Let your light shine before people in a way that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, what do you think of when you think of good works? Honestly, for me growing up, I, I thought that letting people see your good works and glorifying your Father in heaven was that if I was a good enough person, if I did the right things, if I didn't smoke or drink or cuss or dance or vote Democrat, that <laughs> then people will see that and go, wow, I want to be more like you. But let's face it. How did that work? Are there very many people who look at us and say, you know what? All my favorite sins, you don't do them. How can I be miserable like you? It, it isn't what he's talking about. It's, it's not about they'll see how good you are. Because, again, the command is let your light shine. Now, to, you know, when you talk about good works... That word for good, there's a few different words in Greek that, that can be translated good. And sometimes that good means good as opposed to bad. Sometimes it's like, yeah, don't do something stupid, that would be bad. Do something beneficial, and that would be good. But this isn't that word. This is a word in the Greek, kalos, that means always. It's unequivocally, the word means beautiful. And really, if you were going to translate this verse effectively, he would be saying, you're the light of the world. Let your light shine so that people can see your beautiful work and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Work is the word ergon. It's, you know, we use the term, like we say ergonomics because ergon means work. Like this is what you regularly do. This is your ordinary routine. This is the part of your life when you go to work or if you stay home, the things that you do at home, whatever it is that you're doing with your life, that is your Aragon. How do you invest your time and energy and resources? And so that is to be so beautiful that it makes an impression on people and they can then glorify God or see how amazing God is. And really, that's what Jesus is talking about. What does this look like in real life? The way that we live our life can have an effect on people, especially if they look at us and say, beautiful work. And then we give glory to God. Maybe A lot of times we make light of this, but some guy, what he does is a baseball player. That's a silly way to make a whole lot of money if you're good enough at it. And then they hit a home run, and win the World Series, 
and they say, I want to give the glory to God. And we can look at that and go, come on. God looks at it and goes, I like it. That was a great hit. That was the best baseball performance that there could be at this moment in this time for you. And you gave glory to me. The question is, will people be drawn more to seeing beautiful work done to glorify God? Does that make them want to become more people who are connected with God, who are a part of it? And I would suggest that it's a much more powerful draw than I'm right, you're wrong, agree with me. I'm good, you're bad, stop being bad, start being good. If if those people who follow Jesus would do what he told us to do in this verse, then people could see that what we're doing is creating beauty wherever it is. Again, it could be on the baseball field. Historically, there would have been no Christianity, um, theoretically, without things that happened that drew people to Jesus. And we can certainly understand how that happened. For instance, I mean, almost all of the great art or music in history came from people who were doing it to bring glory to God. Most early hospitals were almost always started as a, an expression of dedication to God and a desire for him to help heal them. That's where hospitals came from. That's where universities came from. Loving people and education and God enough to put them together. And most of the great universities in our world were founded on those kinds of principles. Now you might go, yeah, but they're not doing it anymore. It's okay. Because when they did it, people went, wow, I'm associating that beauty, that profundity with God. And God's like, that's all I'm asking, that you would do beautiful work and then give me glory. So as a result, like we did our little Halloween party here the other night. It was packed. It was amazing. We had a great time. Every, so many volunteers and everything. And it was, I looked at it and I'm like, this is beautiful. Now, I couldn't have seen how beautiful it was without the lights I got. But at the same time, seeing the looks on those kids' faces when they're riding ponies out here, when they're petting animals in the petting zoo, the people who are eating their fourth hot dog, you know, <laughs> it's like I just looked around and I, I was so proud of what, of a beautiful event that we were able to have. And certainly there were opportunities to tell people the gospel or some little gospel tracks and stuff that went out, but maybe that's not the point. Maybe the point is, can you create something beautiful and you know, if it's at a church, you already know it's kind of connected to religion and to God. And I think we so often miss opportunities to create beauty and and we even discourage people from creating beauty in certain ways because we have a canned little approach where we think, no, the way to create beauty is to preach to people is to persuade them, is to argue with them. And God's like, I want you to be light. I want you to make beauty. I want you to be somebody who, that when people see 
that your job is creating something beautiful, that they can connect that with me. And again, I, you know, most of us are, tend to be very traditional Protestants. And, and for those of us that came up in Calvary Chapel, real low church kind of subtleties. But, you know, you ever travel somewhere like in Europe and walk into the Sistine Chapel or some other great cathedral without going, I want to argue with these people about Mary. But instead, you're just like, whoa, this is beautiful. This is really amazing. When we understand that, we partly understand what he's talking about. And they understood it, and it's what preserved Christianity for hundreds of years, is that there were people who, whatever else was going on in their lives, they made sure that they designed beautiful buildings to glorify God, that they created artwork to glorify God, that they created music to glorify God. Everything they did was to say, I am making something beautiful in order to give glory to God. And historically, you can certainly argue that it worked. You can, even in evangelicalism, I remember as a little kid at the Church of the Open Door in Los Angeles, and they had this huge neon sign on top of it that said, Jesus saves. And I still, there were two of those signs. I think one of them now Biola owns, but because they started there at that, at that place. But, but it's like, it was simple. I mean, maybe it lost some of, its, some of its beauty when Gene Scott bought the place, but it's still like, it's like you get your attention. You're driving along and you see it. And you might go, well, wait, you know, they need to have more information than that. You know, what makes people want to get more information rather than being drawn to something that's attractive? And I, and I would say that what Jesus is saying in this verse is, let your light shine in front of people so that they will see what beautiful work you do at what you do and that then they can give glory to God. And I think we miss a huge percentage of the impact we could have on the world by just making everything about just being explicitly religious, that everything we do has to make an argument. No, it's legitimate to create beauty. And if you, if you doubt that, look at the one who invented everything. Most of the universe that God created, and, and he tells us that it was created to express who he is. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Most of what he created in the universe, we will never see. No one will ever see it, except the Enterprise and a few other people who really go where no one's gone before. But for the most part, it's like God is extravagant. There's such beauty also as you look at something under a microscope where before there were microscopes, nobody could even see it. You know, but we look at it and go, he didn't create all that beauty just to give us the information that we need. This isn't the Truman Show. We don't live in a big dome. We live in a vast universe. And as you look at it, the bigger it gets, the more amazing God gets. Now you can go, well, I don't really believe in God. I just think all this randomly happened. Um, 
I understand that you can come up with some chemical explanations for what a sunset is. But what I don't understand is how come that sunset can make me feel the way I feel when I see it. There's something else. No matter how amazing the universe is, it's pointing me toward God. And when it does it best is when I'm speechless. When I'm just like, wow. I remember years ago, my friend Tom White, he was a construction guy his whole life. He's with the Lord now. But he, uh, I was talking to him before he died, and, and he was telling me about all the projects he had worked on in his life. And he told me about, you know, that he designed this really exclusive country club and all these. He's telling me about all of his jobs. And I go, I go, Tom, what was your favorite project you ever worked on in your life? And he goes, that's easy. And I go, what? He goes, it's that cross I made for you. It's that cross right there behind me. And for him, that was the pinnacle of creativity. And every time I look at that cross, I think of him. That cross came because another friend of mine, Dave Riley, sketched it out on a napkin. He goes, here, I just, here's an idea I've had. And then I gave it to Tom, and he made it. That, you know, yes, that cross reminds me that Jesus died for my sins, but it's so much more than that. The subtlety of it, the power of it, the, the way that it communicates. And, and again, for me, I look at it and I think of Tom every time I walk in here. And that is the kind of beautiful work that continues to speak and continues to glorify God. And I think that this is something that we all need to think about. Every one of us is designed to create beauty somewhere. You can create beauty when you're raising your children or playing with your grandchildren. You can create beauty when you're a salesperson and you're trying to help people and, and you're doing it just in a way that people are surprised or if you're a server at a restaurant or if you're a teacher trying to help kids or if you're a pilot flying an airplane or everything that you can do for Ergon, for work, can be done beautifully, especially if you do it in a way that's so noticeably beautiful that there's an easy explanation that, yeah, God... God led me to this. God did this. I was talking to somebody after first service who said, I love mountain biking. And I just, when I get out there and it's beautiful and it's just amazing. And I go, you know what? I, I don't mountain bike, but when I go hike on trails, sometimes mountain bikers come along. And I said, yeah, sometimes they're jerks. But sometimes they'll just be like, hey, it's a beautiful day, isn't it? As they come whizzing by me. And all of a sudden, my whole day is elevated. That's a beautiful way to ride a mountain bike, to just plant a little seed somewhere. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus would sometimes heal somebody, and most of the time he healed people, he didn't share the gospel with them. Most of the people that he healed didn't even end up following him. But anyone who watched him saw the beauty in what he was doing and many of them were impacted. And throughout church history, when the church gets ugly, people aren't drawn to it anymore. When the church sees and appreciates beauty and is the light that he calls us to be, amazing things happen. People's souls are saved. 
for all of eternity. They can spend eternity in the light instead of in a place of darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it all comes back to, what am I making? What does my work look like? In what ways does beauty get reflected through what I do every day? And in small ways, how am I able to glorify God? And so I would challenge you this week to really think about this. Ask yourself, what's my work today? What is it that I'm doing today? Regular stuff. How can I do it in a beautiful way that actually causes people to make some connection with, wow, that was beautiful, and I can go, oh, yeah, God's great. It's that simple. Um, some, some baseball player genuflecting after a home run does more to glorify God than somebody who wants to go start an argument with somebody in a way that drives people away. So it's our choice. What do we do with it? So this verse, to me, is one that, you know, if every day for the rest of your life you are asking yourself, am I creating beauty to bring glory to God? Jesus would look at you and go, that's why I call you the light of the world. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the potential that you place within each of us as your image is in us and we have the capacity to appreciate beauty, to reproduce it, to call attention to it, and even to, in our daily lives, to do what we do in a beautiful way that points to you. Deliver us from the idea that we need to win people to you by us beating them down or making them lose. Open our eyes to the opportunities all around us to make this place a more beautiful place. And the darker this world gets, really the easier it is to stand out by having a different attitude, a different approach, a different love. Help us to do that, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, t-